0: And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox.
1: Good afternoon, I am Vena Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, your nation's public radio source for all the information and inspiration you need to start or grow your own real estate investing business. And while interviews with experts and successful investors and about strategies are one way that we do that, the other way that we do it is... A monthly question and answer week, always on the last Wednesday of every month on WMKV. Uh, If you want to listen live and you have to be listening to the podcast right now, the showtime is 5 p.m. Eastern. And you can listen even if you're not here in the greater Cincinnati area at the WMKV.org, WMKVFM.org Uh, website or there's this cool app that you can download on your phone and just click it at the right time and it'll play that's I use that when Drew is hosting the show and I'm out of town I monitor what Drew is saying from wherever I am through the WMKV app but this is your opportunity to ask any questions that you have about you know real estate finding deals financing deals getting rid of deals, <laughs> getting started, retiring, whatever you want to ask, I will make every attempt to answer it. And if I can't answer it, I will refer you to somebody who can. The way you ask those questions is either call in if you're listening during the live program at 877-772-9658. That's 877 <laughs> Or alternatively, you can send an email to askvina at gmail.com. That's A-S-K-V like Victor, E-N-A at gmail.com. While we're waiting for those first questions to roll in, have you guys noticed that there's something going on in the market? I I know you have if you live on one of the coasts. I've been talking to students for a year about how The, you know, incredibly hot seller's market has died down a lot in some of the more expensive coastal areas like Miami and certainly San Francisco and San Jose and Seattle and places like that. It's not that houses aren't still selling. It's that they're not selling in one day with over asking price, no contingencies offers. It's the sellers are our buyers are feeling uh, more free to negotiate their prices and terms. And uh, that was, you know, the first signs that something was going on. And I can tell you that even here in flyover country, uh, we're finding that we're able to get more uh, interest from sellers by doing mail. That sellers that we talked to six months ago who were, like, Oh no, I'm never going to take that price are now calling back and saying, um, it maybe could take something close to that price. And the net result has been that this uh, month of January has been possibly, I'm not a hundred percent sure about this because I've been doing this for 20 years and I don't have all the numbers in front of me, but I I think it's going to turn out to be the most profitable month I have ever had in wholesaling. Like the gross, the gross number is going to be in the six figures, which is over the last few years, it's taken three to four months to get to that number. And uh, I'm telling you this because if we are in fact, as I suspect now, so into a market slowdown that it's, it's having really obvious effects that these slowdowns tend to only last around 18 to 24 months. So this is not like, don't, don't think it's the real estate bubble and don't think that the market has just permanently changed because it has not, it never does, but it's, it's a good opportunity and one that is not terribly long lived. And so if you made a new year's resolution this year that said, yeah, I'm going to get serious about real estate or serious about wholesaling. Don't, don't like, now wait until summertime to start doing that, like get on it, whatever it is you need to do, whether it's, I need to get some more education so that I feel safe about going out and making offers, or I need to join my local real estate association so that I can make connections with like real local people who are really doing it and not just trust everything I hear on YouTube. Um, Take a step this week, eh? And uh, incidentally, one step that you could take is uh, that uh, Cincinnati Rhea is hosting an all-day how-to-wholesale workshop on February the 15th here in Cincinnati, or on March the 21st in Columbus, taught by moi. And um, that would be a good place to, like, if you've been thinking, I want to wholesale, but you don't really know quite how to do it, or how it works, or what the process looks like, or what contracts you need. That's a good uh that's a good day to learn those things to get started. And you can get more information about either of those dates, February fifteenth in Cincinnati or March 21st in Columbus at com. That's Cincinnati R-E-I-A dot com. Okay, I can stop tap dancing because I have some questions now in my inbox at Uh, AskVina at gmail.com. I have several, in fact. Um, (laughs) The first one is from Robert, who is writing from San Juan, Puerto Rico. And I am not going to read the pseudonym that he gave me because every time Robert asks a question, it's like pseudonym from somewhere. Sam from San Juan. It says, he says... I understand that Zillow is now offering to buy houses, along with Open Door and other large iBuyers. buyers. How do I compete in this market if I want to sell something? Are they a good choice, and if so, why? Yeah. So Zillow announced a couple of years ago that they were going to start um, an an automatic online offer system, like where you just you know you enter your property address and some information about the property and the repairs that might be needed. And they'll send you out an offer within 72 hours and you can accept it or reject it. You can't really counter it. And then if you accept it, then they send somebody out to actually look at the property and then you get the real offer. It freaked everybody out because the name Zillow was behind it. And Zillow has of course spent 10 years training us all to Uh, Think of them as the go-to resource for a lot of things like properties for sale and rents and, you know, values, all that sort of stuff. So they were like this 800-pound gorilla, like jumped into the house buying market. Well, it turned out that they started that process by rolling it out only in a few cities. And of course, they were some of the hottest cities in the United States. And. Then they rolled it out into more. I think uh, last time I looked, which was in October, they were in 15 markets, and they were the, they'd be the ones you'd suspect, you know, um, Phoenix, Dallas, places like that. And they, um, I assume, will eventually have this available all over the country. However... They were not the first ones to do this. They are not the biggest players in the market. They're just the ones with the best known names. There's actually several other of these eye buyers who are in multiple cities who um, do do many more deals, I think, than Zillow does. And the the bottom line here is, go research how those offers actually work, because they are not actually buying houses and neither are most of these other, quote, i-buyers. Uh, they are acting as a lead source for, in Zillow's case, a hedge fund with more hedge funds standing behind that hedge fund that, uh, that they will ultimately sell to. Uh, in the case of some of these other places, a, a select set of buyers right? So these are these are not folks who are actually buying houses on the whole. And the offer that sellers end up getting appears to be, from everything I've read and people that I've talked to, around the same as you would probably want to buy that same property for. And the process seems much easier, right? It seems like, oh, I just fill out this form and I get an offer. Yeah, sort of, except the offer you get is not the offer that you're going to get when the inspector shows up and sees what's really wrong with your property. And also, at least Zillow also charges a fee on top of, so we've already offered you like, you know, 75, 80%, 70% of the after repair value of your house, less repairs, as they would have to, because they're investors, not homeowners, there's got to be a profit margin in there for their buyers. And then also there's a fee for ha- for Zillow having made this transaction come together. So it's not, it's not as easy as maybe it sounds. And w- when you get right down to it, they're not doing things a whole lot differently than you would do it. But the advantage you have is that y- you have more of a personal touch, right? You're going to actually get on the phone and build some rapport with folks. And you're going to go over and explain why things are the way they are. The other advantage that you have is all of these I buyers are looking for one very specific kind of property. They're looking for primarily single-family homes, primarily in B to, you know, A areas, some C pluses. And if the property does not fit the box of we can get it for X percent of value, less repair costs, they cannot do the deal. They cannot do well, I I actually I actually can't give you what you owe on your property for cash, but what I could do is lease option it from you, or you know buy it subject to the existing loan or something like that. So, I do think that some of these companies are gonna they're gonna kind of change the perception of the American public about how one sells a house that needs work. But that doesn't mean that they are going to like push all the small investors out because they have some disadvantages. They have some advantages of scale and they have some disadvantages of scale. And the disadvantages of scale are they can't really build relationships too much. And they also can't do any deal that doesn't fit right in the little box that they need it to fit in. So personally, not terribly concerned about them at the moment do appreciate your question, Robert. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. We're going to come right back after this quick break. We're going to answer questions at 877-772-9658 or at askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. And it's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate. And the questions today seem to be flooding in on uh, askvina at gmail.com. But you also have the alternative of calling in at 877-772-9658. I just, you know, take the calls before I read the emails because don't want you on hold forever. Um, question from Rudy in L.A. He says, I am a wholesaler newbie. Is it fair to say that the best candidate for a wholesale deal is an older property with plenty of equity in need of repair in a middle to lower class neighborhood? If not, why not? I live in Southern California and certain older areas are being gentrified and it seems like buyers are paying ARV for uh, homes in need of extensive renovation. After buying, they then spend a lot of money remodeling it. I guess they feel prices will keep going up and they'll come out okay in a short period of time because of appreciation. So sellers of those properties don't want to take much of a discount. Uh, Rudy, no seller of any property wants to take a discount. I want a million dollars for my house in Cincinnati. It's not worth that, by the way. You would be overpaying by, oh, about 300% if you paid a million dollars for my house in Cincinnati, but that's what I want. And I don't want to take a discount. And I am most sellers, right? The, the kinds of folks that you are looking for to do wholesale deals with they're, they're not just sellers and they're not just sellers with older houses with lots of equity and in need of repairs. They are sellers with all of those things. Plus some serious issue that they are, Dealing with some some pain outside of just the just the house itself. Um, we recently bought uh, s- several properties in several different packages from what I would call not just retiring landlords but like super burned out landlords. <laughs> People who their their stories range from. Yeah, they've been okay, but now I live literally 30 miles one way from these properties and because I'm super hands-on, I'm having to go over there all the time to do stuff and fix stuff and collect rents and deal with issues and my 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 work has gotten super busy and I just can't do that anymore. So I just need to get rid of these properties. Like uh, they're they've they've become a much bigger headache than they are an advantage to me. I've uh, got another one who has had his property under-rented, by which I mean he uh, probably is charging 75% of what the rent should be because he doesn't want anyone to move because he doesn't have the energy or money to go fix stuff anymore, and he would rather just keep the rent low and not have to update things all the time. And now, on top of that problem that you know property is barely making any money to start with uh it's gone vacant and he's just like yep nope (laughs) i just i've got to get rid of this thing i'm too old got to turn it into cash and he doesn't want to go fix it first so those are issues outside of i've got this property if these folks had all the time and money and patience in the world they would fix them up and then they would put them on the market and then they would get top dollar but they don't have the time and money and patience for all of that so um you you gotta you gotta think first about the people, not the property. What is the seller situation, not what is the situation with the property? Yes, older property with plenty of equity in need of repair is pretty typical of the houses you're gonna end up wholesaling. Middle class to lower class neighborhood, not necessarily, I would add to that. I mean yes and yes, but I would you said middle class to lower middle class. Um, I would add to that move up neighborhoods, like not luxury, but the be, between like, you know, middle class and luxury, there's this other co- property type called move up. And those are very, very popular with rehabbers and they don't have to be all that old. Now, Cal- California as a whole is going to have newer properties than Cincinnati as a whole, you might consider an old property to be something from the 70s. We would consider it to be something from the 1870s. But even you can often find deals that were properties that were built in the early 90s, that the same person who built them is still living in them, They're living in it. And they've never done anything. It's still got, you know, it's got now a 30 something year old roof. It's got A 30 something year old furnace and it's just got that 90s look about it it just doesn't look you know cosmetically current and they don't want to remodel it before they sell it and and really a house like that could seriously need 60 or 70 thousand dollars worth of work to bring it to get all the mechanicals straightened back out again and open up some walls and do things that you would do for a resale today and rehabbers love that kind of house But of course, you still have to get it at a price that you can make some money and they can make enough money to uh, make sure that they are compensated for the risk and money they are putting into the deal. So you're kind of heading down the right path there, Rudy. It's just, I I want to, I cannot say often enough, just in general, not just on this show, but I say this all the time to, in real estate groups and to people who are trying to get into the business. It's about the people. It's not about the property. You're looking for a situation first and then you look at the property and see if it's something that will fit one of your one of your uh, strategies, whether that be wholesale, retail, buy it creatively and rent it, rent it, whatever. But thanks for the question, Rudy. I think this is the first time Rudy has written in and I appreciate that. Okay. Question from Kenya in Cincinnati. Kenya says, do you know how many HELOCs that's a home equity line of credit someone can have at the same time? Are HELOCs only granted for the personal residence? Can I apply to any bank for a HELOC on any investment property with significant equity and therefore have several active at the same time? Okay. So Kenya, the traditional home equity line of credit is only going to be against your own personal property. So, you're only realistically going to be able to have one because what is backing this home equity line of credit? your home equity um just to make up numbers, let's say your house is worth two hundred thousand you've already got a hundred thousand dollar first mortgage, so you have a hundred thousand dollars worth of equity right You could probably if you got good credit, you could probably pull out ninety to a hundred thousand dollars of that equity through a home equity line of credit, but you can't do that with multiple banks because the home equity line of credit is also a mortgage. There is also paperwork filed down at the courthouse that says, uh, if you don't pay us, then we get to take your house. And obviously like bank A is not gonna give you $100,000 that takes up that $100,000 in equity. And then also bank B is going to give you that $100,000 and also bank C is going to give you that $100,000. Because if you default with Bank C, Bank C's taken the property and Banks A and B, I have no protection for their equity anymore, right? Of course, the way I just said that, Bank C would have the fourth mortgage and would just be in a really bad position. Now, as to HELOCs on investment property, that is a very interesting question. Uh, Most banks will just straight up tell you no. They do not do home equity lines of credit with equity that is in a rental property. Some of them, and this is usually your smaller local banks, will do a, an equity line on a property that is paid off. And it they'll, they'll generally do like 50% of the value of the property. So now you've got a $100,000 rental. You can get a, a line of credit for like $50,000. Again, only one you can't get can't get multiple banks to do that for you and you're going to have to search around a bit to find a bank who wants to do that under especially under any terms that you would want to live in under the um the kind of gold standard out there for people looking for lines of credit for their business is an unsecured line of credit and i guarantee you that if you call 50 banks tomorrow and say, I would like to get an unsecured line of credit for my real estate business. They will all tell you they do not offer any such thing. That is not true. They just don't let people know they offer such a thing because they are, what they're looking for in people that they give secured lines or unsecured lines of credit to is a banking relationship with somebody who is going to put a lot of money through their bank. So your best bet for getting an unsecured line of credit is consolidate all of your bank accounts, including your business account, your 401k account, if you are, if you have a self-directed 401k, all that sort of stuff into a small local bank and then sit down with a banker and say, what would I need to do to get an unsecured line of credit? And the first time he might say, oh, we don't offer those. And then go back every six months as he sees you do lots of business with the bank and say, so... Can we talk about that unsecured line of credit some more? And the thing is, it, it once the once the once the floodgates open on those lines of credit, and you've you've actually gotten one, it's probably going to be a small one to start with, right? Twenty thousand dollars or something, and you've gotten and you've made the payments and you've used it and put it back. Um, they tend to then want to give you more and more and more and more money. So uh, it's it's very kind of relationship based, though it's not it's not something that's going to be on the lending menu of hardly any bank and you need to you need to do something for them right borrowing money from them is not doing something for them in their minds you have to process lots of money through their bank so that's that's the ultimate thing that we, sh- we you should be looking for and at some point maybe we could get somebody on the show who's Uh, successfully gotten some of those lines of credit and let them talk talk through what how that process worked because it's not a short-term process it's a long-term process but it's a good thing to have you're listening to real life real estate investing i'm your host Vina jones cox it's q and a day here on real life real estate which means if you have questions i will make up answers out of whole cloth no, I will use my 30 years of real estate expertise to come up with the best opinion I have on your question, uh, which you can ask by calling 877 772 9658 or sending an email to askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cux, and it's question and answer week. And if I seem a little distracted, I'm getting a ton of emails right now, um, partly because when I sent out, I send out an email every week to listeners that says, here's what's on the show, and then here's what I'm thinking about, and here's what I'm doing. And I had asked the question about, uh, there's this deal I did last week that was it had the most moving pieces of any deal I've ever done. And I mean, think about that saying a lot. That's, that's, I've done a lot of deals for a lot of years. And I, I asked the question, would, would you, would you watch a If I made a video that just explained this deal, which involved one seller, six properties, nine units, five of which were occupied, two offers, an early payoff. I mean, it it was, it, and the evaluation alone was, you know, it was a, a day long process because one of them was a four family and five of them were single families. And then I had two buyers involved, one who wanted financing, one who didn't want financing. And I said, if I if I did a whiteboard and kind of explain this, it would take 30 minutes. And if I made a video of that, would you watch it? And I'm getting like tons of emails at askfina at gmail.com saying, yes, I would I would watch it. Um, and I said, what I said was if, if 50 people would watch it, I would make it. So I think, I think we're at 50. So good. We're good. And, but I'm trying, I'm having to like sort through those to, to get to the folks who uh, are asking questions. Okay. Robert, apparently from Datangeles. Is that a real place or, is he conflating Dayton in Los Angeles and I'm missing it. Dayton Angeles. Uh, so his question is, what in your view is the best real estate strategy for someone using a self-directed Roth IRA, wholesaling notes, multifamily, hard money loans, et cetera. I'm an engineer and I love numbers. I just don't know where to start. Uh, so in a few, in a few months, I'm going to have uh, an expert from an IRA company on the show to answer questions like this from the technical perspective because there's, there's two things to consider here, Rob. The first one is what is going to be the most profitable and the other one is what is going to be the most technically doable because there are some limitations, as I am sure you are aware on doing deals in your IRA that involve uh, the question of personal services. It involves how much, how much is Rob involved in the management of this deal that Rob's IRA, which is a legally a different person did and, and getting, getting, entangled in your own IRA deals is something that can get your IRA disallowed, which is extremely expensive. Like the IRS takes like 50% of your IRA on the way out the door, as they tell you, you don't have an IRA anymore. And some some strategies are are more prone to you accidentally or intentionally <laughs> getting involved in personal services with. So my my answer is going to come from my real estate opinion, right? It's going to come from what what do I think is the best the the ask again when John Bowen's is here from Equity Trust because he he would have some insight about, you know, we see clients that get in trouble with it. He can't give you real estate advice, but he can tell you like how the IRA actually works. So I would ask you, do you have a little IRA that you need to turn into a big IRA pretty quickly, or do you already have a big IRA and you're looking to deploy lots of money effectively? If it's the latter case, I think that private lending kind of has the best combination of it is, in fact, hands off. Like, it's unlikely that you're going to have to get into dealing with management on a private loan that you carefully researched and understood before you made it. It doesn't turn bad. Um, a lot of my tax-free account money, because I, I i do have an IRA, but I also have a 401k and an HSA, uh, is is in private loans, even though that's not something that is a big focus of my business outside the IRA. And the reason is I need the money that's in the IRA to generate money without me having to get too involved in it for, for legal reasons, but also because I'm busy. Um, if I had an, in fact, a few years ago, I did have a very small IRA that I needed to make, make big so that I could make these bigger investments. Um, some version of wholesaling, probably not, probably not direct contract assignment. Probably IRA actually closes the deal. Maybe, maybe by borrowing money if it has to, and then sells the deal because a contract assignment is kind of a personal service. You have, you have to be super involved in that. Uh, wholesaling can build it up really fast, but at some point you'll have enough money that you can make the more passive investments, and that's going to be your your private loans possibly hard money loans. Do what you already know, though, like don't use your (laughs) don't use your retirement money to experiment and gamble. Don't don't go into like some whole new, oh, I've got enough money in my in my IRA to go buy an office building. So I'm going to do that even though I know nothing about office buildings or how to evaluate them or how they're supposed to work or any of that stuff. uh, Because that's just, you know, you're just going to lose it you 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 already have to any IRA investment is going to be better if you already know how to do the investment in real life. So I know you wanted me to say, "Hey, do this." And the answer is as always, it depends. Um notes and loans to me are the the easiest thing to to you know you're not going to be doing Transactions that are disallowed or that involve personal services if you're buying loans and making loans, buying notes and making loans. Um, But that, you know, it's not always the case that you've got enough money in your retirement fund to go out and do that full on. So you might have to do something a little more aggressive at first you might want to, I don't know what your employment situation looks like, Rob, but you might also want to look into 401ks, self-directed 401ks instead of IRAs, because they have the advantage that if you accidentally do mess up and do a transaction, you should not have done. And, you know, it can be entirely accidental. Only that transaction would be disallowed from your 401k, not the whole 401k. So something else to talk about, John talk about talk with john bowens about in a few months but uh, i do appreciate the question thank you um, uh, teal oh man teal says i'm not i'm not saying all oh, man because teal i love teal teal's awesome but it, the topic of the question uh, please talk about the new law passed in seattle where landlords cannot evict tenants between november and april And then please tell me what your advice is for how Seattle area landlords can best manage the situation through upfront screenings. I'm thinking that with better tenants, this could be avoided as an issue, but I also think there are some rules and limitations regarding how much screening can be done upfront as well. Yeah, so first of all, Teal, I do not believe that that law has passed. I believe that it has passed committee and it has not been voted on by the full city council. Although that is supposed to happen this week, I know that uh, Roger Valdez from Seattle for Growth and some other folks have actually taken it to the state. To they're trying to get the state to pass a ban on eviction bans because it looks like the city is going to pass it. In actually reading the law, there are there are a bunch of defenses for the landlord. Like, like, it's not, it's not just a straight up, you cannot throw somebody out of a property from November to April, no matter what they do. There's, there's reasons, there's a list of reasons that you can still throw them out. But you have to go, as I read it, you have to go and like proactively, um, like defend your reason for evicting a tenant who's not paying their rent, which is weird. Right. You have to you have to go and make the argument that I am, in fact, allowed to evict this person because of X, Y or Z. Seattle has a whole slew of other laws. So Seattle and Washington State both have a a whole slew of other laws that have passed in the the last few years that are going to make it much more difficult for you to do what you are hoping to to do, which is say, well, I'm just I'm just not going to put somebody who's financially irresponsible into one of my units like there's this first in time law there that says the first person who applies and meets the minimum criteria, you have to take them. Uh, I uh, was it Washington, I believe it was Washington State that recently passed a you cannot consider a felony conviction or any criminal record in in you know, screening a potential tenant. It is a mess out there. It is a mess. Like like the, the, the way, all right. So in Seattle, houses are expensive. Rents are expensive. There are folks who can't find rent, can't find places to live that they can afford on 30% of their income or 35% of their income, which is what HUD recommends that you be paying for your housing. The way we housing providers see that is, well, you know, you guys have some really restrictive land use ordinances where it's hard to build and then you also make it expensive to build and difficult to build. And for all of those reasons, what's being built is really expensive housing. And if you would loosen up on a lot of that, builders, builders would like to be able to build houses that people can afford as long as the builders can still make a profit, but they can't make a profit right now building it because you've made it so expensive to build. Oh, and also over the course of the last 10 years, uh, land costs across the United States have approximately doubled. And, uh, the, the rates that you have to pay contractors, drywallers, roofers, people like that has doubled. So like everything's more expensive and then you make it worse by making it hard for us to build. So yeah, we're just going to build really expensive stuff. So we see all these things, right? We see all these costs are up, land costs are up. You've made it hard to build. Therefore, people aren't building. That's why you have a housing shortage. Seattle City Council apparently sees it as landlords. The problem is landlords, greedy landlords. We have to restrict evictions and have rent control. And that will somehow do what? Create more housing? No, it will create less housing, not more housing. So when this thing passes, which we'll, we'll see if they get the thing through the state first, um, we'll have Roger Valdez back on to talk about what happened and all of the tentacles about what happened, because trust me, you will see it coming soon to a city near you, because it seems like such an awesome solution to and such a simple solution to the problem the problem the thing is it doesn't solve the basic problem which is there are not there's not enough housing for people thank you for your question teal Uh, we're going to come back in just a minute and finish answering up some of these questions that uh, have come in through askvina at gmail.com. If you want to make sure your question is answered, you need to give us a call at 877-772-9658. Welcome back to real life, real estate investing. I am your host, Vina Jones Cox. It's Q and a day. And I had to, I had to sit back and flip my switch off after that Seattle thing. I just, I, d- I don't understand <laughs> how anybody can say. You know what would be cool? Let's 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 take an entire business and tell them when they cannot collect money for their services. Can you imagine? like can you imagine? A governmental body going to a grocery store and saying, "Hey." people are really hungry in December so they can come and take your food and not pay you for it and you're not allowed to get any money or sue them I mean you can try and get it from them in January but you're not allowed to like keep them from walking out of the store in December with your food uh. anyway back to the questions Uh, question from uh, Tom in Northern Kentucky he says how long would you wait before contacting a homeowner to buy their burned out house? Sadly, the owner died in the blaze. Wait 2 months? 3 months? I don't know where to start with this question. Tom, um First of all, why do you want a burned out house? And that's the least of my questions. That's the least of my questions right there. Secondly, how are you going to contact the owner if they died in the blaze. And thirdly, do you really want this property this badly? Like, I I don't think I, I mean, if I knew that the owner had died, I'm sure I have accidentally contacted, you know, spouses of owners who have died in the house, but I've never like known... Hey, that house is burned out, and oh, hey, the owner died in the fire, and oh, hey, I should write to the widow and find out if they want to sell the house. Like that's I, I, I that is a situation that I would not intentionally touch with a ten-foot pole. Other, other than like, if I knew somebody who knew the owner, I might ask them if they were looking to sell. If if they if I found out they were like, oh my gosh, I really need to sell this house, then I might step forward and say. I'm super sorry about your loss, but I wouldn't like call them. I wouldn't cold call them. I wouldn't voiceless ring mail, ring them. I wouldn't or ring this voicemail them. I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't write them. I might, I might sniff around the edges and see if I could find somebody who knew them and see what their situation was. And if they said, oh my gosh, I, they definitely want to sell. I would introduce you them. I might do it. But again, that then I would go back to, why do you want a burned out? House that must be like a really super valuable house if it's still super valuable after it is burned out. Um, question from Audrey in Asheville Asheville is one of my two favorite cities in the United States. I love Asheville, North Carolina. I wish I had bought. Like 20 years ago, the first time I went there, I thought I should buy a summer house here. And I didn't. And I so wish I had because it would have like quadrupled in value by now. You could buy houses there at that time for 70000 that you probably couldn't touch for under 300000 right now. It's a very, very interesting hot market. Um, Audrey, who also read the email that I sent out to all listeners, said, is this trend... Is this going to be a great year for buying and flipping real estate exclusive to your market or in all markets across the country? Um, I think, Audrey, that it is probably the, the uh, mid-cycle slowdown that we should be experiencing any moment now is probably going to be sharper the hotter the area was going into it. Because that that's how it always is, you know. You got your uh, your 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 San Franciscos that over the course of ten years, the the values will go up three hundred percent, and then they go down two hundred percent. They can't go down two hundred percent. They would be worth less than zero. They go down by two thirds. Right? They go they go they triple and then they go down and the 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 bottom is still higher than the bottom last time, but it's still a significant drop. So, so what I'm saying is uh, areas that have big real estate cycles, have big real estate cycles, both up and down areas with little real estate cycles, which would be more along the lines of, you know, Cincinnati, Columbus, St. Louis, Kansas city, places like that tend to have little downs that they're not, you know, not so quickly rising ups either. So I think that every market's probably going to see this. I think Asheville will probably see it more than Cincinnati because it's been a hotter market than Cincinnati. Um, Every once in a while, you see a city that's somewhat protected from these ups and downs because they are pulling in so many jobs and pulling in so much population that they don't... um, they don't really experience the downs too much. They're insulated from them, at least during that market cycle. Nashville was like that. Na- Nashville with an N, not Asheville, was like that in the last uh, real estate cycle. They they barely saw a real estate bubble. Uh, Washington, D.C. was like that, and-, and all the surrounding areas was like that during the real estate bubble. There was like a blip, and then prices went back to where they had been. They didn't grow very fast over the next few years, but they were somewhat insulated and Asheville it'll be interesting to see Asheville itself so I'm not talking about all the surrounding cities there in western North Carolina where there's not so much you know increase in value and whatnot. Uh, Asheville might get somewhat protected because it's 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 a smallish area and it's got that huge you know artist community and tourists and but mostly because it's small, there's not there's not a ton of uh I mean you you build out too far and you're building up a mountain there, right? So we should watch that you and I and see how it does compared to other cities, um, particularly in the Carolinas. It would be interesting to see what happens in the Carolinas specifically. Uh, but I think Asheville might be less subject to that sort of thing than others. And finally, we have a question here from Tom who says, Okay, so you made six figures this month. How could we do the same? I realize that experience and longevity are major factors, and you can only share so much so as not to feed the competition. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what, Tom, it was a couple of really big deals. And I will say that I will say that six figures was the gross. There were some expenses on that that probably brought it down to somewhat below that six-figure number. But um, I am going to do this whiteboard thing. When I get it done, I'll put it up on YouTube or my website or something and let everybody know. And actually, seeing that deal will explain half of what you're trying to find out here, but it is way, I'm telling you, it's going to take me 30 minutes with pictures to explain how this deal came together. But yes, experience longevity, but also just doing what wholesalers do, right? Finding deals, knowing the right buyers, all of that sort of stuff. Uh, Hopefully I will see you at the all day workshop that I'm doing for Cincinnati RIA on February 15th, Cincinnati for more information about that. We are out of time. We'll be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing.